The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Welcome to a very special edition of the two-man power trip of wrestling. I'm your host, JP John Paz, and with me is my protege, the Dublin Destroyer, Mr. DKO himself, Derek O'Reilly. Derek, how you doing? Not too bad, JP. How's things over there? Very good. Very good indeed. And of course, we are joined by the former WWF Intercontinental Champion, WCW United States Champion, two-time WCW World Tag Team Champion, NWA World Heavyweight Champion, and four-time... <sighs> ECW World Heavyweight Champion, the franchise, Shane Douglas. Shane, what's going on? What's up, guys? How you doing? Derek, nice to meet you, buddy. How you doing? Uh, you too, Shane. Not too bad. You can't really complain. Hey, I think you're trying to kill me, though. This is two nights in a row now I've been told I was going to do a podcast, and it is now 10 past 3 in the morning. Oh, my gosh. I forgot about the time difference. Oh, hey, bless Shane, your heart. <laughs> Shane, put yourself over. You have me doing a podcast at 10 past 3 in the morning. All power to you. All power to you. Give, I'll give you the threat, sign of respect for you there, brother. Thank you. Uh, the wolf pack's still going strong. <laughs> now, Shane, we talk to you every week on the Triple Threat. You have so much stuff that we've talked about over the last few years for that. But, you know, what's been going on with you as far as, I know you keep up with Cody Michaels and, and you're still buddies with Dominic. Is it something that a lot of uh, wrestling trainers and trainees and all the guys, are they still buddy-buddy? Because it seems like you guys are a little bit different because, you know, you guys are still basically friends like 30 plus years later yeah well i you know not to sound corny like with dominic I, you know I, not that i needed a second father you know i had a great dad i died in 1993 but dominic uh i, I look up to him as a father figure uh you know he's first of all he's just a great human being uh <laughs> you'd have to look high and low to find a, a nicer person than dominic uh, but I just enjoy being around him. He, he's infectious to be around. You know, you could be in a crappy mood and you go sit down and talk with Dominic and in 15 minutes, you know, you're busting chops and laughing and, you know, in a great mood. Uh, he, he's just, I've never seen, I was talking with his daughter the other day. I've never seen anybody, uh, certainly from my generation that is as much a people person as Dominic is. He's, and I know it sounds cliche, but he's like a son, to, a flower to son. You know, if, if you put him in a room away from people and block him off, he had just sort of wilt over. But you put, yeah, I, I took him down to my uh, my sister in law's bar uh, a couple weeks ago. Hell, we weren't even inside yet. On the sidewalk outside, he's I, every time he does this, I'll say, "Are you running for mayor again?" You know, because he he'll st he'll talk to anybody, and everybody loves him. You know, he's just such a great guy to be around. But actually, I think the biggest thing for like me, you know, and I think all of his trainees feel that way about Dominic, but. 
In Cody's case, in my case, I live seven miles from him. Uh, Cody's about 13 miles from him. So he's pretty central right between Cody and I. Uh, you know, and, and for me, it's just, um, first of all, at 89 years old, I'm still thrilled that I can go hang out with my trainer, uh, you know, let him know how appreciative I am for what he taught me. And, uh, again, you know, just a great, great guy to be around. The age difference there. Well, what is that age difference, Shane? Do you know? Well, let's see. Dominic's 89. So there would be 50 years difference between us. No. <laughs> Damn it, I almost got you. I, I told you before we came on the air, I'm not really good at math. So I could have really stressed it and said 60, but... It's... Hey, the quaff just makes you look younger and younger. Don't bash yeah. it. Don't bash it. Just well, it well, you see all this, this dark in there. I was I was changing my oil today, and it sprayed up on me, so i got to wash it all out of there so I can get the, get the blonde quaff going back again. There's a couple guys from your generation that, that don't quite have the hair anymore. I can't say who, but just not there for them. But they got a great-looking cue ball. <laughs> now as far as kind of uh dominic and when you started with him did you know he's going to kind of be at, like a launching point where he's going to get you some wbf matches or you had no idea when, when no. you first started training with him no i you know and honestly I, I i know this sounds like you know we're making like mick and i and cody none of us thought we were good enough to go on the road like, we thought, okay, we're good enough for, like, local shows around the tri-state area here, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia, where Dominic would run. But, you know, I remember distinctly watching TVs back then and saying, like, you know, like, Bret Hart and, you know, Jake Roberts and, you know, all these guys, perfect and on and on and on. You know, those guys were, like, way, way up here, and we could never, ever get close to that. So, you know, you never even had that. In my case, the only reason I trained with Dominic was after I graduated high school and was going to college, I knew that I was going to be involved in athletics at college. I was going to focus. Uh, nobody in my family had ever gone. So my thinking on going to college was I'll, I'll go, give it my best shot, and fail out. You know, so I went and was focused 100% on my academics. But I still wanted to stay active, so I started training with Dominic just to stay involved in some kind of athletics and stay in shape. Uh, and, uh, you know, we when we first started training, Dominic never told us he would get us shots at WWF or, you know, experience. Uh, you know, it just sort of happened and blossomed along on its own. And another thing about Dominic I have to say is, you know, you've heard me talk about Paul Heyman later saying he, he didn't micromanage in ECW. Dominic was the same way. You know, he never came to us and said, hey, don't go there. Those guys are, you know, I think he wanted us to learn the business, the good and the bad of the business. Uh, you know, he might drop a hint someplace here or there, but for the most part, he wanted us to get in-ring experience. He more of a basic fundamental guy rather than a sports entertainer, let me show you how to create a character guy? Absolutely. He had an extensive amateur background. Uh, and when he trained for professional in uh, Canada, I'd always had it wrong in my head. He'd always talked about this Olympian that had trained him, and I always assumed that was in Italy. And I would look for this name in, in, you know, the Olympic rules for Italy, and I could never find it. Uh, it was actually in Montreal he started training. So he had amateur background from Italy. Uh, went to uh, uh, Montreal, France, and then worked as an upholsterer there for a short while. Started training. Uh, Dominic is on the basics about as sound as any grappler that's ever been in the ring. Uh, you know, he – you're not going to – even at 89 years old, I bet if you cut down on – referee's position you'd have a tough time getting ahead of dominic uh he just knows like the back of his hand and 
much like his promos, Dominic was a horrible promo guy in part because of the language difference. But he also had along like when he went to Montreal, didn't speak that language, had to pick up French, and then along the way picked up four or five other languages on top of it. So Dominic's bilingual. Uh, I always tell him and, and mastered none of them, right? He's uh, he's he's been speaking English longer than I've been alive, and still can't speak English. I always joke him, but uh, you know, and so that was the problem with his promos. But Dominic, when you go back and watch any of his matches, uh, when you know the, the catches catch can style, right? When the rest of the, the grappling stuff, the holds and the counters and reversals, you couldn't get a uh, get, get in front of Dominic that way, and and I think that's really where he built his chops, and the fans really respected that out of Dominic. With you, how do you kind of develop into, like, you're a great promo guy, one of the best of all time. How do you kind of develop into that? Is this just, like, years of experience? Do you practice it in front of the mirror? How does that come to you? No, Well, thank you, first of all. I, I uh, no, I, you know, back then, the old-timers, I, the, the, I call the guys ahead of me the old-timers, right? Uh, they would tell you, like, practice in front of the mirror, write stuff down, memorize it, that kind of thing. I could never do that. It's the same reason why I can't remember, you know, 60 moves in a spot. So I'm going to sit down and talk. Okay, let's lock up and you do this and I'll do that. Uh, To me, I think that anybody can be a great promo person. All they have to do is be given confidence in their character, know their angle. You know, so like like I always talk about, like with uh, some of the AEW characters that, that we're really unfamiliar with. We know their names, we know their faces, but we don't know why Pac is pissed off at the world. We don't know why Hangman does the things he does or whatever. Explain that, because if they can't enunciate that, whether in the ring or on a promo, that means they don't know. And if they don't know their own character, how can you enunciate that character? I can write a promo for anybody, right? I mean, I know how to do a promo. But anybody that's followed my career after hearing the person I wrote those promos for do them, at some point you're going to start going, boy, that sounds familiar. Who's that sound like? Because we all speak in our own vernacular, right? I can try to sound like somebody else, but still, over time, that the, 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 uh, the, the phraseology and the, the sentence structure is going to start to come through, and especially the delivery. So uh, for me, as I was, you know, I wasn't always good at doing promos. Uh, there's the, I, somebody, I think one of you guys told me that there was the promo that was uh, from, I think, Dallas Reunion Arena. I'd come back from the ring, n- never being told I had a promo, and Dusty said, hey, go back to the ring, Jim Ross is going to interview you. So I run back down to ringside. I said, what do you want? He said, he'll tell you. So I get down there, and he just starts interviewing me. I, had, I was blown up. I just wrestled. I had no idea what to say or how to respond. And it just came off just so awful. I was so pissed off at myself that I got caught with my pants down like that. I swore from that day forward it never happened again. So, you know, the, the one thing, as you know, I, I can't stand in, in promos are the cliches. Let me tell you something, brother. I'm, you know, I'm going to give it a hundred percent and all that, you know, that those cliches we've all heard 10 bazillion times. They sound so corny and they don't sound real to me, you know? So anybody with any intelligence can speak. I'm we're, we're speaking here. We've been speaking for how many minutes before we came on the air. None of us had to go, hold on. Let me check my notes. Uh, here's what I'm going to say <laughs> next. Right. Yeah. So if, if you know your, your character and, and you just stop and think about what it is you're going to say, and then if you, once you know that, you can start to look for the little tools that we use. Uh, Flares was the kiss, steal, and will, and deal, and woo, and all that. You know that If he got stuck somewhere, he would go, go and say that stuff. And by the time he had gone through that routine, 
his brain would have kicked back in what he could say next. Mine was the franchise laugh, right? So, uh, and maybe a cuss word here or there, uh, <laughs> once or twice. But, you know, it, it's today what I fear is being lost, but with everything being teleprompted and pre written, is it's not forcing any of the kids to learn their character, to know their storyline or angle. And where they want to take it, that to me was the fun part. You know, you have the storyline here and the angle here. I want to pull a little bit over this way because I want to do something with it. Well, you can do that by planting some seeds in the promo and then, you know, go and talk to Joey and say, Joey, pick up on this point. You know, and now we're, we're, we're pulling back over to where I wanted it to go. That was the fun part to me and kept it interesting. That's all been sanitized out. And I think it's had a real detrimental impact on, on what we're seeing in sports entertainment as far as the promos go. What do you, when you first started out, what did you get more comfortable with first, your in-ring stuff or your promo stuff? Oh, definitely in-ring. Yeah. Uh, but that took time too. I mean, it, you know, it's, you know, here we are you know, 40 years later looking back. Uh, Steve Austin and I had talked about it on his podcast before we went on the air and then subsequently on the air in his podcast with, uh, and he asked me how long it was before I felt comfortable in the ring. And, you know, I thought about it and said it was probably like six or seven years. He was, yeah, it was about seven years for me, too. And now that was seven years of 350 plus days a year on the road, working multiple shots on weekends. Uh, so yeah, it was and for you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes per night working, uh, then hours and hours in the car driving back with somebody like Steamboat or whoever just, you know, talking to you all night long about, you know, not lecturing you just you know just talking the business you know so we had an extensive in seven years i would say it's part of 10 about the 20 or 25 years of experience the kids are getting today in that time but i, I want to stress something here it, 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 steve and i both agreed that at seven years it wasn't like ta-da now i'm great i can't there's nothing else i have to learn i got it all what i mean by feeling comfortable in the ring at, at, at the seven year mark was if something went went errant, you know, if you got kicked in the head and you know got lost for a second, or the match got off track, you you felt confident that you could sort of pull it back onto the track without panicking. It still took a lot longer to master it. Uh, as far as the promos go, uh, I can't really remember when I started feeling comfortable with promos. I do remember when Ricky and I were together. Uh, that you know they they were working hard times and we'd have to get down to the studio and, and CNN Center to cut them and they would always want me to start feed it to Ricky in the middle and then finish it because you know I, I was good on the out cues and you know you can't go you know if the fingers are coming down two one and you're still finishing up a sentence it's no good you got to start again uh, so it was around that time I started feeling really not nervous about doing promos. But the franchise character allowed me, you know, and I've talked about this on air pre previously in the Triple Threat podcast, uh, the franchise character gave me, uh, like, you know, like taking a, a light beam and focusing it down like a laser. It suddenly gave me a really clear vision of where this guy would talk. You know, the, the franchise would never in a million years, not only would he not help an old lady across the street, he'd probably kick her cane out from her as he's walking by her. Right. Right. Uh, that, he's the kind of guy, you know, that I, I hate the term pussy heel. The franchise is not a pussy. Uh, and I hate pussy heels because it infers that, that all heels are, you know, not good fighters or strong or good wrestlers, whatever. 
the franchise was more than willing to let his mouth write a check. Uh, but then his ass couldn't cash it. And at that point, when, when, you know, Taz, I couldn't get Taz the back peddler, get ahead of Taz. That's when I, Ooh, okay. Maybe, I, maybe I shouldn't have said that much. And it, so it gives you a lot more, uh, area to play with the character as opposed to just like, kind of the heel that keeps on slipping on the banana peel. Uh, you know, so for me, that that was the the tougher part of the in ring. For the promos, the 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 coming of a character that allowed me to focus everything down into that fine point like a laser is what really made it uh, crystal clear to me. You know, in the promos, because a we had no hard times. You, you could go out and talk for five minutes, three minutes and t- 12 seconds. What, as long as you had the promo done and in and out, they, they would work around that. Uh, so that sort of freed up to just focus then on what this character would say. What's the storyline. And very occasionally Paul might say, Hey, don't forget to mention this or that, but he never came to me one time in ECW and said, okay, don't forget to say a, B, C and D. And then at the end, make sure you hit E. It was never that kind of structure in ECW. TKO, what do you got for the franchise? Well, Shane, first of all, let me just say thank you very much for everything you've done for the business over the years. You know, you're obviously you're obviously very passionate about it and you've been through quite a lot on that too. But you're also you've also had an awful lot of experiences. You're one of the veterans, as we would say. So I'd like to ask you as a very valued opinion. The Undertaker was on Joe Rogan's podcast. So since you may have originally heard it, do you still feel the same way that you do now about what The Undertaker said about today's guys being too soft? Yeah, I don't, you know, I, I know he's had a lot of, uh, I, I'd seen a couple different uh, comments he made after. I, I agree in the sense, it, and I don't want to put words in, in, in Mark's mouth, uh, if what he meant by that was that the kids today haven't had the experience and aren't being held to the same kind of account, I completely agree. Uh, I've often told the story, uh, I'll tell it again here real quick, uh, when I was working for Bill Watts and you know my first break on the road, my first night with Watts in the building, it was not my first night in UWF, it was the first TV taping I was at. I worked first, if it wasn't the first match, very early on in the card with Eddie Gilbert. Uh, Eddie, of course, called the entire match. I came back through the curtain, and I was just really floating with excitement. You know, finally working for a TV company and starting to build some kind of a career. And I came through the curtain, taking my tape off, and Bill Watts was standing 20, 30 feet back next to the dressing room door, hands on his hips and, you know, uh, leaning on one side. And he did look very happy. As I got close to him, I gave him the heads up, like, what's up? And as I went to walk by him, he said, what the fuck was that? I stopped dead in my tracks. This guy owns the company. He's the boss. And I, I, in my head, like a million miles a second, I'm thinking, I settled on, he's ribbing me. It's my first night he's ribbing me. And so I looked at him, and I was going to say, nice rib. I cracked a grin, and he came at me like a grizzly bear and slammed me into the wall, face right here, poking me in the chest, you know, in a pretty terse tone, you know, (laughs) barking instructions at me. Don't ever turn your fucking back to the camera, that kind of stuff. Uh, later in, in UWF, I saw Bill Watts, uh, and I'll abbreviate this story, uh, call uh, Dick Slater over and send him out for a match that Pez Watley was supposed to have with a kid who he'd also yelled at for several days in a row. And I heard him tell Dick Slater, 
I want you to go out and teach this kid a lesson. If he comes back with teeth in his face, you're fucking fired. And wow. so he goes to the ring, and I, I'm at the curtain. I, again, I'm thinking I'm being ribbed here. Like, they're, they're pulling my leg, right? So I go to the curtain, and he goes out, and sure enough, pops this kid in the mouth and comes back and w- walked over to his back, and he was punching the time clock. If that's what I mean whenever Mark was saying, like, you know, softer, that was the kind of stuff that Mark and I had come up in the business seeing. And so I, I say it jokingly, but, you know, ribbon on a square. Uh, I'd be in the ring back then. And, you know, because I usually go to the ring first as the baby face. And, you know, I'd be in the ring, you know, warming up and loosening around and stuff. And in my head, I'd be thinking, please don't let Slater come through that curtain. Please don't let Slater come through that curtain. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that we we dealt with. You know, was that right or wrong? Who's to decide? Uh, I, we learned our craft, so you know the ends justify the means, I guess. But you know, today, and I, I I've been in the WWE dress room the last time I think it was like two thousand seven, eight, something like that. Uh, so I really don't want to speak about that dressing room because I, I I don't know. I, I I'm guessing Mark would know, and you know I think the kids today have had by and large. You know, we all stand on shoulders, right? Uh, you know, I still, my generation stood on Bruno's and Flair's and Hogan's shoulders. Uh, these kids are all standing on those and ours. Uh, the industry is quite different, and I don't think the kids today, you know, have any of that kind of pressure. Uh, I'm sure they have other pressures, but don't have the kind of pressures that we had as young kids coming up that somebody might come to that curtain and knock your teeth out. Yeah, I think it's unbelievable how much the business has changed, Shane. It must, it must uh, be hard for you to watch today's product when you were in wrestling, when it was really good, when it was, it was taken so seriously, and the crowds absolutely loved it. You guys all knew how to draw heat. You all knew how to act a good baby face. Whereas now, it's just it's very hard to tell the difference. Yeah, well, there's there, the line has been so blurred between heel and babyface, that it's really it's very difficult even for me to dis- to discern who is the heel or babyface if i don't already know the guys that are in the ring uh and you know it's again we could go on three-hour tangent on this but you know it's as a heel going to the ring it's uh when you walk to the ring and your head's down like i've seen so many kids at independent shows do and ignore the crowd. You're my God. You, you've already blown fifty percent of your of your gig. You know that that's the fun part of our business. Uh, you know, you watch it today, and, and you know that uh, I watched Raw. What was it? Three or four weeks ago, and within 15, 20 minutes, maybe thirty minutes, I it was you know the, the top of the Raw program. They had so many different people in and out of the curtain talking back and forth to so many different people. I couldn't tell who was angling with who. It was just a whole hodgepodge of people talking to each other that made no sense to me, heads up or heads down. It, uh, it's, you know, I, I was blessed to be in the business when I was because I sat in dressing rooms. Uh, you know, you, you sat in the dressing room and, and looked around and, oh, there's Pez Watley, an incredible worker. And, you know, there's... Uh, uh, Terry Taylor and incredible and there's Eddie Gilbert and there's and there's Terry Funk and there's the you know everybody else in that dressing room could work circles around everybody. I mean, you know, it was just incredibly talented dressing rooms. But I heard a phrase the other night and I cannot remember who said it. Uh, 
that captured my, oh, it was, it was Ricky Morton. Ricky Morton was giving a seminar and he said, uh, we used to treat the business as sacred. And that it's a pretty accurate statement. You know, that it was, uh, if there was an outsider anywhere around, uh, we, we protected the business because that was our livelihood. And it was also protecting the veracity of the product that we're putting out there. You know, I talk about it <clears throat> every, all the time, but this year, you know, every year around WrestleMania especially, we see the WWE put these pictures out, right, of the WrestleMania experience leading up to WrestleMania. And here's Shane Douglas and here's Taz getting ready to fight for the world title, both in tuxes, glass of wine or beer in our hands and our arms around each other smiling for the cameras. And then on Sunday, we're going to go out in the, in the ring and we're going to pretend that we really, really don't like each other. Uh, it, it just so sanitizes and muddies the water. You know, it, 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 it makes it so confusing for the viewer. And I really don't see what it adds. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, does, I don't even know any sitcoms today, uh, but, you know, back in the day when Happy Days was on, did it really matter if they showed us that Fonzie and Richie Cunningham didn't like each other or didn't like each other off camera? It's irrelevant. What It's the show we're watching. And so I, I don't understand why they do it. I'll never understand, never agree with it. And you're right. For me, it is. It's painful. I think anybody from my generation, it's painful to watch the business today. That said, I am always astounded by the athleticism of the kids. Uh, I watch these kids do stuff that <laughs> we used to consider almost impossible to do. And they do it 150 times per match. Uh, Dominic, when, when he watches, the one thing he always says is, my God, they're working hard. You know, they, 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 I don't see kids being lazy today. They're putting in 10 times the effort they really should have to put in to, to elicit the reaction from the crowd. But nothing they're doing is in any semblance of, of making sense. So, you know, if I come up and I hit you in the head with a baseball bat, I can't then pick you up and say, okay, now, you know, recite the, the Gettysburg Address to me. Uh, you know, those two things don't go together. If I hit you in the head with a baseball bat, you're probably going to be pretty dizzy and if you're even conscious. So, you know, A has to lead to B, has to lead to C, to D, to E, and subsequent. None of that's being done today. Everything's just vomited up as, a, as an astounding athletic display and effort. But nothing makes sense as far as telling the story. Well, I've gone back and I've watched some old episodes of Nitro recently because I wanted to watch all of that again. I wanted to see all of the, you know, the stuff with Hogan, the NWO, the whole lot. Right. And just as you say that about how, how these guys are so athletic, they do so many, so many of the same moves over and over again, Shane. It's not going to get a big pop from the crowd. Whereas you do something more simple, which is not going to injure anybody. So, for example... Goldberg and Hogan square up. Yeah. And Goldberg two times in a row pushes Hogan all the way over to the turnbuckle and the crowd goes nuts. Absolutely yeah. nuts. Yeah. They it, are it's... simple things, Shane, but the way they were done, the build up to those moments allows for that type of pop. It's, you know, it's people are just waiting for something to happen and that's just you know oh hulk, hulk hogan the mighty hulk hogan is pushed down by goldberg and these are simple things shane and yet they drew these drew massive numbers to the tv each week and they get crazy pops from the crowd you look even when a show show begins today okay so go back two years when we have crowds <laughs> yeah and you look at wcw 
look at how the both of the crowds were Shane. At the WCW crowds were insane at the beginning. They knew what they were going to see was going to be really good. Yeah. And they were it's it's almost as if they were on drugs the whole night because they don't stop. Whereas now people are getting tired. There's too much wrestling. It's wrestling match after wrestling match. The pre-shows are too long. There's no suspension suspension of belief. There's just nothing different. Yeah. There's nothing that stands out that says I want to watch this tonight. Yeah. They're only maintaining the same crowd they've always had. They're yeah. not adding to nothing. Yeah, nothing nothing's growing. We've talked about the ratings ad nauseum, right? Uh you know, I'm it's curious worse and worse. Yeah, and I'm curious to see now that NXT's moved to Tuesday. Uh I think the 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 idealist and, and, and the real uh optimist would believe that that means now suddenly they're both gonna be doing like one point three, one point four million viewers. It's been my belief since the beginning of this Wednesday Night War <clears throat> that it's not 1.3 or 4 million watching. It's some smaller number with the people moving back and forth between the channels. This will prove it one way or the other uh, pretty quickly. But even if still, uh, you know, a year and a half in, they launched at 1.4 million viewers AEW. Dropped 50% that second week and have hovered there. They've Yeah, they've climbed up a bit and they've dropped down a bit. But by and large, it's been a flat line for the last year and a half, uh, soon to be two years, I this October, I guess. But it, it's and it's not going to grow the audience because there's nothing that they're going to reach out to the 48, 50 million fans that have walked away uh, from, you know, back in the day. And there's nothing uh, that they're doing that's going to compel you to want to watch again. When I go to, the, I'm a big movie buff, buff. By the way, I went to see Godzilla, uh, King Kong versus Godzilla tonight. <laughs> Every wrestling fan will love it because it it's a great wrestling uh, program. But uh, so, you know, whenever I go to the movies, you know, I, I pull out an old classic bullet with uh, Steve McQueen, right? One of the greatest car chases of all time. Uh, it lasted probably five, six, seven minutes in the movie out of a two hour movie. What was so good, and it's been talked about so much, why didn't they just make the whole movie a car chase? Uh, or why didn't they have three or four car chases in that movie? Because it was so good. The reason is because they want to build to that, right? They, they're, all, they're putting all the facets in place till now we're going to have the, the baby face chase the heel in this incredible car chase. Uh, and, you know, once it's done, what do they do? They don't go right from that to another high spot. They settle things down to give the viewer time to think about what they just saw. Now, today in wrestling, and we used to do the same thing, right? We'd give a high spot, and then there'd be a hold grabbed, uh, whether the heel up or baby face up. Uh, but that allowed the fans to then catch their breath from the big high spot we just did, allows us to catch our breath, but it also allows the fans to, to mull over and put into place what they just saw. Now, everything is speed up, speed up, speed up, speed up, speed up. And the moves that they're doing while they're speeding it up are the same moves the last match did and the match before that and the match before that. Uh, you know, there were certain moves that I stopped doing in my repertoire because there were other people in the dressing room doing them. And likewise, people stopped doing moves that I was doing. You know, there was a general respect amongst the boys to not do that. But I also remember, and I, I, I mentioned it only because I was at that seminar with uh, – Ricky Morton this past weekend, and his son was sitting there, Kerry, uh, really, really nice young man, uh, good-looking young kid, and really 
catching on to the business. Uh, it's got in the genes, I guess, right? But uh, I was telling him about his dad, and this is a true story. I remember because, you know, I was usually on like right around the time, you know, I was done and in the backstage area and watching that rock and roll was getting ready to go to the ring. So I would see them always, you know, Bobby Eaton or Stan or uh, uh, Ricky or Robert, you know, just going over and looking out, looking out. And, you know, back then they didn't set any of the matchup, but they might plan, okay, tonight we'll work the leg or we'll work the back or we'll do this or we'll do that. Uh, I can't say it was every night, but I would, you know, there were several instances where I'd see one of them go to the curtain and go, oh, shit, and come back. And they'd have to change because the match before them was also working the leg. And so that's how professional they were, that this match is giving them the leg. We're not going to do the leg again next match. And so they would change it up right there on the spot. Boom, go to the ring and and tear the house down. Uh, Again, the business was sacred to us. The the veracity of what they were putting out there as a product was sacred to them. And so they could have very easily gone out and still kept the leg. Instead, they changed it because the fans had already seen that. But that's the thing, isn't it, Shane? Put a bit of effort in. Try and do something different. Try and show that you actually care. But then when you have companies that are just willing to throw any amount of money at you, even though you're practically insulting your audience, then who do you blame the most? Do you blame the companies that are willing to pay for this? Or do you blame the guys that are running the shows? Who is worse, Shane? Well, ultimately, it's the promotion, right? I mean, any promotion I ever worked for, I did something they didn't like. I'd catch help from either the promoter or the agents or whoever uh, that would pretty quickly resolve that. But I come from a blue collar family. My dad was a railroad worker. My mother worked in a mill. Uh, My friends, their parents were all blue collar. Uh, I know what it is for an average family to take 50, 75, 100, 150 bucks out of their family budget to come see us. That's a privilege. If Derek is going to spend $100 or more to by the time he buys a ticket, parks his car, gets a hot dog, buys a t-shirt and a picture, whatever. I owe you my best effort in the ring. I owe you the best product I can put into the ring that night, not because there's full of people or one person out there, but because you were uh, nice enough to reach into your pocket for the money you've busted your ass for during the week to make to come see my ass wrestle. So it, I owe you, we owe you as, as a consumer. And, you know, it's, I, I think sometimes, and especially today, I think the business, cause there's, you know, we're hearing billions here, billions there thrown on just like incredible numbers. That's really not being borne out by the product. You know, it used to be, you know, if you go out and you see the building 85% full, you think, Oh shit, checks are going to be down, you know, like a big panic time. Uh, now we're not seeing any live events. You know, we, we, we've got TV set up in the building or monitors set up in the building, but, uh, the ratings are dropping. The, the per capita, uh, merchandising is dropping. Uh, the only money that's coming in is from the TV revenue, not to dispel that. I mean, clearly you can float a company on that, but to me, it looks an awful lot like a bubble, right? There's a lot of false money out there. The money's coming in for a product because the name WWE on it. But the, the pool is going like this and dwindling at the same time the revenues are going up. Uh, see, it just looks like a bubble to me from the outside looking in. It's crazy, JP. 
Hey, I totally agree. But as we head towards the finish, we head towards the wind down. Shane, I don't know if you've heard this or not, but the WB Network has moved over to Peacock for the billion-dollar deal. But a lot of the footage and stuff hasn't moved over. So let's just call this maybe a YouTube playlist since we can't do it from the network anymore. <laughs> you know, everyone's a, a big Shane Douglas fan. What are some of like, the, the highlights or the, the best matches that you would say – you can't get it on network anymore. Go to YouTube, look up Shane Douglas versus blank or Shane Douglas does this, that you would really want somebody to watch you versus Taz, you versus Bigelow. Like, what would you say? Wow. I mean, it's, you know, that, that's like the, the tantamount of the same question. Fans always ask, you know, who is your fa favorite opponent? Uh, again, having had a long career, I've been blessed. I've worked with some incredible talent. Uh, looking back to ECW, it was all fun. You know, it didn't matter who you're working with. Everybody's busting their ass in the ring. And the angles were always so spicy, you know, that, that it was fun to go out and execute them. Uh, uh, it's funny, like, I, I, it'd be hard for me to just point press and say, okay, go back and watch this particular match or that particular match. I'm really proud of the work that Ricky Steamboat and I did working with the Hollywood Blondes. Uh, I was still very much learning my craft at that point. And Ricky was clearly the senior member of that team. But... The fact that we had gotten over so well with the audience and Ricky and I had really gotten to be, you know, we're great friends to this day and always will be, uh, you know, so I'm proud of that because that was really what sort of put me on the, on the map. I'd had a career before that and some successes, uh, and some good matches, but you know, that, that was where it started being like on a nightly basis. No, not taking any credit. We were all following steamboats lead. But then when I went to ECW with that experience and the experience I had prior to that, you know, I, I then had an incredibly talented dressing room to work with uh, and was blessed to get to be the mouthpiece for ECW. So, uh, you know, I, I'm proud of my work with uh, Sabu early on and Terry Funk. Uh, I, you know, I, I think it in many ways put the company on the map. Uh, and set the stage for an incredible flow of talent that would come in and, and leave during the intervening years. Uh, my angle with Taz, I, I thought was, 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 was very good. The match, I, I think in my head that, that my feeling that it was me at my peak was me working with Pitbull, uh, number two, uh, because all it was like I was you know banging on all cylinders. You know, he, I was so comfortable with him because he was comfortable with me in the ring. And, you know, it was easy because he was waiting. We were playing Simon Says. Uh, later, my angle and, and matches with uh, Bam Bam, you know, I, I think you know, I'm very proud of. Uh, had always been astonished and still I'm astonished by, by Bam Bam Bigelow's uh, prowess in the ring. As big as he was, you know, those buildings were always blazing hot. And, you know, to watch how he moves around, so effortlessly and the November to remember match in 97, I'm 250 plus pounds, 253 or so at that time. And he's throwing me around like a rag doll for the first 15 minutes, presses me over his head. That building's about 114 degrees with the TV lights, throws me into 5,000 plus people, throws me out into the uh, aisleway on the security, then goes back and puts his arms on the top rope, looks into the hard cam and he's barely sweating and barely breathing. And he had done nothing except throw me around. I had done nothing. I mean, he had thrown me around for that the entirety of that time. Bam Bam was an amazing in-ring talent. Uh, excuse me. 
incredible specimen. But he also could always deliver the goods. He watched his angle with Taz. He watched his angle with me. He watched his ma- matches with whoever else in ECW. Uh, he always got whoever he was working with over. Didn't matter if he was going over or under. He got the person he was working with over beforehand and also kept himself over at the same time. In the business, we call it giving the rub. And, you know, he was amazing at that. And, and at the time he came to ECW, it was something really very much needed. So, you know, all of those, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm missing a bunch of people because they were, like I said, ECW was, was, uh, you look forward to going to like, like, you know, here we're on a Wednesday night, Thursday in your case, uh, there, Derek, uh, <laughs> we, you know, you, you started getting excited now because you know, in two days you were getting to go back to ECW and have fun again. So, uh, you know, I, I would say anything really from ECW. It's funny, I guess it's the old Eddie Graham, but then kind of Sullivan took it, but Heyman took it as well. All craziness could be going on in the league, but if you have that pillar, if you have that champion, if you have that one guy that's the constant, people will be like, okay, maybe this isn't good, but they have a really good champion. ECW had that with you. It was always like, okay, you know, Sandman's nuts, Sabu's nuts, but they got this guy, Shane Douglas. He's the consummate pro, the consummate champion, like the pillar that everything else can kind of go crazy around but as long as you have that pillar it's not going to collapse yeah and i i think that was by design by paul right with all this insanity going on at the center of the you know the core of it was was the guy that they had the fans had known for some time as a professional wrestler i wasn't a gimmick uh but by the same token the belt legitimized me you know mm-hmm. with, with the promos that i would do if i didn't have the belt you're sort of just a big mouth blowing wind uh People like Sam Mann earlier, Mick Foley, Terry Funk, Sabu, they didn't need belts. I, you know, they were attractions. And, you know, so again, that was the, an asset that I got to carry because the other guys didn't really need it. Yep. DKO, you got any final questions for the franchise? Shane, why do you think these guys today, they don't want to make... <laughs> They don't seem to want to ask any advice from anybody. I mean, there's people like you that are out there who would probably be more than happy to speak to any of these guys if they if they wanted to ask you what they were doing wrong, where they think they could improve, what do they think that can separate themselves from everybody else so they can become the number one. Like AEW has people like Tully Blanchard, Aaron Anderson, and from the sounds of it, nobody is really... From hearing what everybody has been saying, I've been listening to an awful lot of podcasts, and they are they are coming to the general generalization that these guys just think everything they're doing is great. And you know, who are you? Well, it's a great question. I I, I can't answer for anybody specifically. I, I'll ask you this though: if uh, if you were, and I'm going to date myself by using this name, but uh, soccer is a pretty big sport in Europe, and I'm sure in Ireland. Yes. Uh, if you were a uh, high prospect for one of the big teams there uh, in Ireland and you were looking over and there was a guy named Pele standing on the other side of the uh, uh, goalpost. Would you ignore him the whole time or would you go there and drive him crazy? I'd be chewing his ears off, Shane. I'd be chewing his ears off. He'd probably be sick of me and trying to get rid of me. <laughs> I'd always be trying to learn from the best. Absolutely. You'd be a fool not to, right? In American football, uh, Tom Brady, what, 40 years old or whatever he is, just uh, won the Super Bowl. And I said, you know, if you just came out of college, and you know, I don't care how big of a prospect you were in college, if you're in the pros now and Tom Brady's standing right over there, you're a fool not to bend his ear. Uh, I, I had heard uh, similar things that you just mentioned. 
uh, I had heard that at a particular show, uh, a friend of mine sat with Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard for two and a half hours at the monitor. And he said in that two, two, two and a half hours, exactly zero kids came to ask them any questions. Uh, I, I know how Tully and Arn and uh, uh, Jake, uh, I know how they teach. I know how Dean works. Uh, you know, I was partners with him for how long. I've been around Billy Gunn enough to know, and I certainly know Jerry Lynn. Uh, I see no vestiges of what I know those guys do and teach in the product. So by appearances from what I'm seeing in the product, it seems that what you're saying and what I'm hearing are going on, that people are not taking the time to go over there and pick the, the, the air of a guy named Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard and Jake Robertson and then at the end, uh, which is just foolish. I, and I think part of that stems from, uh, I, I don't think the kids are being disrespectful. Uh, I say kids because they're so much younger than me. Uh, but I, I think there's part of it that there's a bit of an intimidation factor. That's Arn Anderson or Jake Roberts, who I don't want to go, uh, which is crazy to me because they're they're all great guys and all very eager to teach and, and help. But I think there's also a part of these kids today that have learned when we get to the building, if I'm wrestling you tonight, Derek, okay, let's go over in the corner. We lock up, you do this, and then I'll do this back to you. And then at this point, you do this, and then we'll, and we'll go over it and 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 over it, and then go out and regurgitate that in the ring. So in doing that, there's really no place to go talk to an Arn Anderson or a Tully Blanchard or Jake Roberts and get their input because we've already talked our match out for six or seven hours, and we're going to go out there and just regurgitate it that way. Uh, and I also think there's some portion of the kids that think, well, the business is different now. It's changed which I agree with. It has changed. The difference is the building used to fill up. Uh, you know, so, yeah, I mean, I, I just find it really crazy and hard to believe that anybody, I told you earlier, I, I wanted to master my craft. I, I really wanted to learn to be a professional wrestler. I didn't want to just be a guy that was okay in the ring or could do some things in the ring. I was obsessed, and I'm like, there's anything I do, obsessed with being the best that I could be at what I was doing. Well, if there's a Tully Blanchard or an Anderson sitting right over there, I know they know more than I know. So I'm sure it's all going to go pick their ear. Uh, in my case, I had the blessing of getting to work with guys like that, where even if I didn't want to learn from them, which I did, uh, I'm going to learn from them because they're going to make damn sure I go out and do the, do what I need to do in that match. Uh, we've all been sanitized out, you know, put out the pasture. So these kids are all working with pretty much their peers. Uh, Mick Foley and I came from Dominic's school. Cody Michaels, uh, uh, you know, pretty good hands that came from Dominic's school. If we all went on the road together and spent the entirety of our career just working with each other or guys the same level of, of us, what could I have taught any of them? What could they have taught me? Uh, and what could I have learned from anybody else working with that's at the same level? It was by going in the ring with the Eddie Gilberts and the Terry Funks and the Ricky Steamboats and all those guys I mentioned that each one of them pulled me up a little bit higher, a little bit higher, a little bit higher. These kids are all working uh, like in a lateral, uh, horizontal way with uh, and the talent level. Uh, there's no empiricism to what to, to the skill levels in the dressing room. Uh, you know, there may be a this one may be better at this and that one may be better at that, but there's really no difference in the experience level. So it's really difficult for any of them to teach each other how to elevate themselves. But they do need to learn how to draw, though, Shane, don't they? 
Absolutely. That's and the biggest big, thing in the business. Yeah, and a very difficult thing to learn too. It doesn't it doesn't come, you know, Steve Austin, like I said, you know, one of the biggest names in the history of our business. I didn't do too badly in my career. Uh, and it took us seven years full time, three hundred and probably seventy, seventy five matches per year, and God knows how many thousands of hours on the road of hearing those stories and sitting in dressing rooms and you know, listening to all those guys with more experience. That's all gone. So you know, we're left in this place. Well, what do you do? You're, you're going to fall back to do what you know. And, you know, when I came out of Dominic school in 84, five, uh, whatever it was, uh, you, you know, I, I knew how to do the basics of the moves and stuff. I didn't know when to do them. I didn't know how to execute all of them properly, uh, how to build to them, how to build the anticipation for those moves that came from working with all those guys that I mentioned. And so we're back to square one again. The kids today all have the same thing. They, they need to learn something, but there's nobody that can get in the ring with them and teach it to them. Well said, franchise, for sure. Now let's get to the plugs. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Two Man Power Trip. Check out the website, tmptempire.com. DKO, what do you got? What are your plugs? You can follow me on Twitter at Derek O'Reilly13 and on Twitch at DKO1988. Franchise, what do you got? <laughs> I don't do the social media anymore. I don't, I'm on on Twitter at the franchise SD, but haven't been on there in how long? Uh, you know, I, I do scan it, you know, periodically and, and try to get on, but I don't know where you guys find the time to do that stuff, man. I really don't. It's between uh, taking the morning shower and shave and uh, doing my daily affairs and doing the things I have to do, taking care of my son, uh, that, that pretty much leaves me about this much time to do podcasts. Yes, yes, I, I got you. I got you, franchise. It's a crazy world out there, keeping very busy. But thank you so much for all the time. Great stuff. Thank you, DKO. Thank you, franchise. And thank you, everybody, for Shane, listening. thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure. Appreciate it, brother. Nice to meet you. Hope to meet you in person someday. Appreciate you guys. Thank you. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the two-man power trip of wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Two Man Power Trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash TMPT Empire to become a patron. And also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two Man Power Trip, where the power lies brother.